Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. And now, a public service announcement from James Dean. Jimmy, we probably have a great many young people watching our show tonight, and for their benefit, I'd like your opinion about fast driving on the highway. Do you think it's a good idea? Dean is slumped in a chair. He's got on the schleppy cowboy costume he wears in the film Giant, which is currently in production. And he's doing little rope tricks as he mumbles. Anything to not have to look the older man in the suit, interviewing him in the eye. They're talking about fast cars and being responsible. I used to fly around quite a bit, you know. I took a lot of unnecessary chances on the highways. And I started racing. And uh, now I drive on the highways, I'm... uh, extra cautious because no one knows what they're doing half the time you don't know what this guy is going to do with that one in theory dean is supposed to be talking about safety on the highway simple message but he can't help but slip in that he loves to raise cars on a track on a track there are a lot of men who spend a lot of time developing rules and uh, ways of safety I find myself being very cautious on the highway. I don't have the urge to to speed on the highway. People say racing is dangerous, but I'll take my chances on the track any day than on a highway. You can see that Dean's restless, done with his obligation. Time to wrap it up. Well, Gig, I think I'd better take off. Oh, wait a minute, Jimmy. Um, one more question. Do you have any special advice for the young people who drive? Take it easy driving. The life you might save might be mine. (laughs) Take it easy driving. The life you save might be mine. Just weeks after this PSA was filmed, James Dean was dead in a car accident, nearly decapitated after his Porsche 550 Spider slammed into an oncoming car on a desolate stretch of Central California Road called Blood Alley. He was 24 years old. I'm Adam McKay, and this is Death on the Lot. Tonight, the life of James Dean, a restless man desperate to express himself in stuffy post-World War II America, the original rebel without a cause, and the prototype for a new kind of American teenager who longed to escape Mayberry. This is episode four, Blood Alley. When you watch James Dean in his most famous role in Rebel Without a Cause, expressing his rage and desperation to a cop, 
you can't help but see a new acting style being born on screen. It's emotional, physical, a little out of control. A minute ago, you said you didn't care if he drinks. He said a little drink. You're tearing me apart! What? You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! Even if it's not always in my opinion, appropriate for the scene, you have to admire the gutsiness of Dean's acting, of his insistence to let it all hang out. You watch it and you're like, man, I wouldn't mind being a, a rebel, moaning and complaining to someone about my inner demons. Looks like it feels good, like it's a giant release. Please lock me up, I'm gonna hit somebody, I'm gonna do something and I don't, and I'm not the only one who felt Dean's magnetic pull. James Dean would only star in three movies before his untimely death. East of Eden, Rebel Without a Cause, and my personal favorite, Giant. But he's become an icon to generations of young, disaffected youth. I could identify with him in a lot of ways. So. His mom died when he was nine. My dad died when I was nine, and he grew up on a farm, and I grew up on a farm. This is David Lohr. He, too, was an all-American farm boy searching for wide open spaces and a more artistic life. Got on a bus and headed to New York. I did a little bit of acting. And I didn't realize all these things until later. We kind of moved in the same paths without knowing it. A sort of magic still hovers around Dean. Laura is now the owner of the James Dean Gallery in Fairmont, Indiana, Dean's hometown. Laura actually befriended members of his family and spent time at the Winslow family farm where Dean grew up. When I was first thinking about buying the house and opening the James Dean Gallery and moving from New York, it was a big decision. And I was staying at the Winslow farm. I was out there visiting the Winslows and I was out walking in the field in the evening and I'm like, I said, man, Jimmy, should I do this? And right at that moment, a shooting star went across the entire horizon. So I said, okay, <laughs> I'm going to do it. I got to admit, I'm jealous. To have a literal sign from the universe, a shooting star, guide your life. I've never had anything like that. I've had like a distant dog barking, or one time the phone rang, and that's why I bought that $20,000 olive tree that I purchased. Now, the James Dean Gallery welcomes thousands of visitors every year, including a fair share of celebrity fans. And people like, you know, Meatloaf came walking in one day, and John Mellencamp, and Bob Dylan showed up in Fairmount late one night. I wasn't open. Kind of blow, blows my mind that we created something like that. People who walk into the museum might be searching for clues to the real-life James Byron Dean, kid from Indiana. Or maybe they just want to bask in the myth. James Dean, a conscious creation, moody, probing, pansexual, a little bit of a selfish jerk. Here's the Wikipedia entry version of James Byron Dean. He was an only child of the heartland. Fairmont, Indiana, small town of around 3,000 people. 
His mother was Mildred, warm, artistic, his father Winston, cold, distant, as fathers tended to be back then. The family moved to Los Angeles when Dean was four years old. When he was nine, his mother died from cancer. His father then sent him back to Indiana to live with his aunt and uncle. Here's where we leave Wikipedia and get into a bit of mythology. Dean believed his mother had given him the middle name Byron after tortured poet Lord Byron and clung to that assumption his entire life. Dean once told Look Magazine, my mother died on me when I was nine years old. What does she expect me to do? Do it all by myself? Dean would later channel this desperate longing for his mother and knew his first big role in the film East of Eden. What'd she look like? Was she pretty? She had the most lovely hands, like ivory. There's literally a scene in which he asks his father about the mother who abandoned him. Talk to me, father. I gotta know who I am. I gotta know what I'm like. I gotta know... Dean was constantly searching for an identity, for reflections of his mother. But despite his enormous loss, Dean was far from alone. He was placed smack dab in the warm embrace of his extended family in the middle of apple pie America. Here's his aunt Hortense in the documentary, The James Dean Story. We have uh, read where he was sort of pushed off onto us, but uh, that is not true. We were happy to have him and uh, he seemed to be perfectly satisfied. And what boy wouldn't be satisfied in Fairmont, Indiana? A Quaker farm town, 55 miles northeast of Indianapolis. Fairmont's tagline is where cool was born. And not just because of James Dean, it's also the home of Jim Davis, creator of Garfield. This is kind of a thrilling fact to me, as it's common knowledge that I have a full-color backpiece tattoo of Garfield eating lasagna inked by Davis himself. Yes, I'm bragging. And of course, Fairmont, it's in Indiana, so there was basketball. Welcome to Indiana basketball. Jimmy, as people called him back then, thrived on and off the court. The highly competitive Dean was the star of the basketball team, even though he was only 5'8 and wore thick Coke bottle glasses. Here's his actual basketball coach talking to a documentary crew for the James Dean story. Jimmy wasn't too coachable. You had to be careful about changing his style, and I learned not to embarrass him in front of the other boys. But for Dean, it wasn't enough. He wanted something more. The big dynamic that is shaping the 50s and that people are kind of responding to in the counterculture as well is a series of new social norms that are arising in the wake of the Second World War. This is Isaac Butler, cultural historian and critic. It's this era of very intense pressure to conform and so Dean looked for ways to experience freedom from the era's strict confines. As a teen, he zipped around Fairmont on his very own motorcycle and organized impromptu races with friends at the local bike shop. 
he's coming from a love of racing. His uncle, who he calls Pa, gives him a motorcycle. He's racing that around. He paints it the color of his school colors. Catherine Parkin is a history professor at Monmouth University and an expert on American car culture. There's a, a sense of importance, not just in the speed, but in the appearance. And he's growing up in an area with intense love of the automotive. Um, he's about 30 minutes from Kokomo, Indiana, where three of the early inventors put together a early car. But pretending to escape wasn't enough for the restless Dean. As soon as he could, he left Indiana for the big city. 1950s New York was brimming with a counterculture underground centered in the village. Beat poets, jazz musicians, and early folk singers were all pushing boundaries. Dean soon became the rough and ready juvenile in countless TV productions. Even in these roles, he emoted and twitched in his signature freestyle. Hey, Gramps, I'll have a chalk malt. Heavy on the chalk, plenty of milk, four spoons of malt, two scoops of vanilla ice cream, one mixed with the rest, and uh, one floating. He did over 30 live TV dramas in New York, and sometimes two a week. And he'd have to remember all those lines and two different stories. And uh, it's just incredible. On a 1954 episode of General Electric Theater titled The Dark, Dark Hours, Dean played a young hooligan opposite good old Ronald Reagan. Remember him? Doc, she's going to get herself hurt. You know that. You'd better get out of here. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to listen to nobody. This is a gun, man. I'm a big man. Take a good look at it. I'm a big man. These men are polar opposites in every conceivable way. Each man seems like they're playing to completely different rooms, to different generations, to different countries. If Ronnie is meat and potatoes, then Dean is some early iteration of vegan dumpster diving. He was just incredible, even back then. You know, you couldn't take your eyes off him. He'd always he'd do something like, you know, scratch his head or itch his back or you know, just anything to steal the scene from the other act- actors. Uh, honestly, if you're a director and you're in doubt uh, or you don't know what to say to an actor, tell them to scratch their back. They're always going to like it. I think on The Big Short and Vice, I must have told Christian Bale easily over a hundred times, hey, Christian, scratch your back. And every time he would look at me in wide-eyed wonder and he would just say, you're a great, great director. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. So Dean's in New York and he's doing television, but his stock really starts to rise when he's accepted into the famed actor's studio part of the method acting movement, which was revolutionizing acting on stage and screen in the 40s and 50s. 
he comes to, you know, and joins the actor studio as part of this micro-generation of especially male actors who are following in the footsteps of Montgomery Clifton, especially Marlon Brando. And those two had really changed the rules of um, what being a, a young American man on screen could mean. Based on methods developed by Konstantin Stanislavski, actors at the actor's studio relied on sense memory of past traumas to fuel their performances. A great performance was one that let the audience get a glimpse at the roiling emotions just beneath the surface. In New York, at the actor's studio, the overlord of method acting was Lee Strasberg. Strasberg's whole thing was actually that, you know, in rehearsal or at the studio or whatever, you're letting out that emotion, but in real life, people repress emotion. And so it's the control of the emotion is where the interesting performance comes from. And Dean was not alone. There was another legendary actor of that era who we've discussed on this show who moved to New York and quickly adopted the method style. Lassie was one of Strasberg's main disciples, a performer who the acting coach once proclaimed could devastate an audience with a flicker of emotion or a wag of the tail. Lassie was so committed to method that he insisted the production of the show put actual kids down actual wells in order to best be able to tap into the emotion required to deliver a performance. In one startling exercise at the actor's studio, Lassie, during a scene with James Dean, actually sat on the stage and actually crept. The whole actor's studio stood up and applauded. Every single word I just told you about Lassie is true. The actor's studio was a hotbed of talent and big opportunity. So everyone wants to be there. They're young, they're sexy, they're performing, they're being creative together, they're fucking each other. There's like lots of sex going on at the actor's studio. Inside the actor's studio, bright young things like Dean would get put through the ringer by Strasbourg day in and day out. All the men are in white t-shirts and ripped t-shirts and jeans because of Brando. The women aren't wearing makeup. They're wearing simple flats and they're wearing either pants and shirts or just a very simple dress. When you um, walk into the small theater, the actors who are presenting are going to be warming up. They're going to be doing preparation exercises. They're going to be relaxing. They're going to be using their imagination. I think for those of us who don't know anything about acting, if you walked in the room, it would kind of look like an insane asylum. One interesting thing about the method is how today, 78 years later, it all has become kind of normal. I get asked all the time about whether I've worked with actors who stay in character all the time, keep their accent, things like that. And there is some of that, but more than anything, the approach of the method has just become kind of a standard approach. Even on the broad comedies I've done, it just made sense for an actor to think about their character's interior life, to try and connect with the emotion behind the dialogue. But in the 50s, it was definitely cutting edge. And James Dean really did seem to connect with how exciting these new approaches were. 
Later, especially after his death, Strasberg would have nothing but praise for James Dean. But according to director Ilya Kazan, who would later direct Dean in East of Eden, Dean hardly ever participated in scenes at the actor's studio. He preferred to watch while he chain-smoked slumped in a chair. That didn't mean he wasn't interested in running with the in-crowd. He found uh, Clift's unlisted number and would call Clift at home at night. And finally, Clift had to be like, you know, get away from me, kid. And, you know, he cornered Brando and was like, you know, what's, what's, this, what's the secret? How do you do it? And Brando gave him the number of his psychoanalyst. Dean had a unique ability to infuriate co-stars from the older, more traditional style of acting. These were stars who had succeeded the old-fashioned way by having a solid lantern jaw and saying their lines very clearly. I was surprised at how how disliked he was by so many of his peers and people who worked with him during the time. He died so early on in his career that, that it took a while for people to really start talking about that more publicly because people don't want to say ill of the dead. But, you know, it was it was really fascinating to read a lot of stories of um, just what a pain in the ass he could be, frankly. Uh, Carol Baker described him as a sad-faced, introverted little oddball. More than anything, Dean was thirsty for connection. He saw a shallowness all around him, in his hometown, in post-war America, and eventually in the studio system that would typecast him as a heartthrob. But rather than retreat, he wanted to expand his work, grab life by the reins. Here's Natalie Wood, Dean's friend and co-star in Rebel Without a Cause, talking to Peter Lawford in the 1970s. I think that really he was not a rebel in, in the sense that he was not rejecting parents. He wasn't sort of saying, uh, leave me alone. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm going to do my own thing. In James Dean, America's forgotten youth had found the perfect person willing to go there to express the sorrow and angst that lay hidden beneath American life. He was really saying, listen to me, you know, hear me, love me. He wasn't blaming anyone. He wasn't, but he, but he was just trying to get that connection. With the birth of the suburbs after World War II came a vision of conformity consisting of two parent households, church on Sunday and ball games on Saturday big roast dinner would be prepared by a mom in high heels, smoking her 30th ciggy of the day. Pretty sweet life. But the teenagers weren't always buying it. You see, they were the ones who saw the cracks beneath this perfectly art-designed American dream. They knew that dad was going alone in his den and drinking at night. They knew that mom was occasionally popping pills. So when the teenagers would occasionally not adhere to the white, straight-laced fantasy of the American dream, well, it was terrifying to the status quo. Rowdy kids. Troubled kids headed for trouble. So in the 1950s, there was a panic 
over juvenile delinquency in the American suburbs. Still a couple of years from real crime, but with destruction and violence their only outlet, they're on their way to it. Unless their outlook can be changed. The troubled teen was born, and James Dean was their number one cultural representative. You know, they say he was the first American teenager. Teenagers in movies before James Dean were all kind of squeaky clean, you know, Mickey Rooney and that kind of thing. But, of course, then Brando came along, but then Dean really was like the first teenager to rebel against his parents. He didn't, you know, wasn't afraid to break down and cry and wasn't afraid to show his emotions. And, you know, whereas a lot of actors just kind of felt pent up. It's hard to overstate how much simply being willing to be in touch with your emotions felt like a revolutionary act, a threat. And no matter what TV executives wanted the public to think, the times were definitely changing. The civil rights movement was gaining strength. Women were fighting to break out of repressive gender roles. You could pick up a vague feeling of the ennui in books like Jack Kerouac's On the Road and in the sounds of jazz, rock and roll, pioneered by people of color. Dean, like many in his generation, loved these new sounds. He was also uncomfortable with the inherent racism and classism which ordered life in the USA. He even wrote a poem about his hometown of Fairmont, which included the lines, My town believes in God and his crew. My town hates the Catholic and Jew. My town's innocent, selfistic caper. My town's diligent reads the newspaper. My town's sweet. I was born bare. My town is not what I am. I am here. Wow, Dean is like an angry, edgy, disaffected Dr. Seuss. That poem displayed a genuine angst, something he brought to all his roles. In Rebel Without a Cause, the scenes between Dean and his parents put it all out there. The older generation simply couldn't understand where all this pain was bubbling up from. You are not going to use me as an excuse again. I don't. Every time you can't face yourself, you blame it on me. That is not true. Mom, I just once, I want to do something right. And I don't want you to run away from me again. But think about things from the parents' perspective for a second. I mean, you got to remember, the greatest generation had just survived the stock market crash, the desolation of the Depression, and the absolute horrors of World War II. I think they were genuinely baffled by the new archetype Dean presented. Who wouldn't want to grow up in such a prosperous, comfortable time? Why wouldn't you want to push down horrible, dark emotions with scotch and pills? I mean, I think to some degree it's understandable that this generation thought their kids were spoiled brats. Whatever caused their alienation for a lot of America's youth, there was a simple cure. Speed. The rise of the rebellious and sometimes spoiled teenager dovetailed perfectly with the evolution in car technology that made vehicles faster, sexier, and definitely more deadly. Up until the late 40s, cars in America were big, heavy, American-made whales that got grandma and grandpa from point A to point B. 
But during World War II, American soldiers had been able to experience the European sports car, built to take on Europe's narrow, mountainous terrain, and the cars were hot. Europe was making these small handling, cool little runabout sports cars, smaller cars. This is Eddie Alterman, the chief brand officer at Hearst Autos and an historical car expert. Post-war Europe was not like post-war America in terms of its economic position. Uh, so you had all these cool little cars over there and you had a growing group of young people who said, I want something different than what my father drove. I don't want one of these gigantic barges. I want something cool. I don't want to call myself an expert on fast cars, but I did make a little movie. Perhaps you've heard of it, Talladega Nights. So, yeah, what's that? You haven't heard of it? Oh, it was a like a comedy about NASCAR in the early 2000s. Will Ferrell, John C. Rowley. No, rings no bells. Wow. Okay, moving on. By this point, certain cars could hit the groundbreaking, jaw-dropping speed of 120 miles per hour. Now, this doesn't seem like a lot today, but back then, people couldn't believe it. And it was thrilling to adrenaline junkie teens. <laughs> yeah, there's an old, old saying that, you know, uh, after the second car was built, the first race began. Competition and motorsport has always been uh, a key component of progress. So during the 50s, juvenile delinquency became intrinsically linked with the teenage mania for drag racing. Teens in their souped-up cars would meet at night on long, dark roads, fields, riverbeds, you name it, and race for prestige and bragging rights. Someone had the idea of turning this abandoned airstrip into a legitimate test course for... In an attempt to curb teen automotive deaths, legitimate drag racing courses were built across the country to bring some order to the wildness of the roads. Here, they compete under strict rules designed for safety and fair play. Hundreds of clubs have been formed. The hoodlifters, the Arabs, throttle jammers, shifters, chaparrals, knuckle busters, clutchers club, dusters, sidewinders. Like many young men in the 1950s, Dean saw race cars as a perfect outlet for someone like him who was always moving. He was obsessed with bullfighting, practicing rope tricks, taking ballet, playing his bongos, oh Lord, um, anything that could get him out of himself. By 1954, Dean had moved from New York to Los Angeles and been cast as Cal in Kazan's East of Eden. After the movie's success, he was a star on the rise with money in his pocket. He's pouring the proceeds of his films into his love of motorcycles and then increasingly faster models of cars. Dean started racing with other rich young studs on the semi-pro circuit that had sprung up in post-war California. He was racing against other playboys. You know, California back then was the promised land. It wasn't this traffic-choked, smog-soaked dystopia <laughs> that, that uh, it has become in some ways. It was freedom. It was the promised land. While the racers might have been elites, the tracks Dean raced were rudimentary and oftentimes extremely dangerous. They didn't have the same kind of barriers that they have today. They had like hay bales. And, you know, people were just always flipping over, going off. 
it was gory and gruesome, but you know, the danger was part of the appeal. He liked speed. He went fast, but I wouldn't say he was necessarily reckless. He was really good on the racetrack. I mean, professional racers said that he was really talented and for a beginning racer. According to friends, as his star power began to ramp up, Dean began to focus as much on racing as acting, desperate to push back against the industry, which was beginning to control his life. Dean played a rebel on screen, but he was very much under the thumb of the studio system, which knew they had Hollywood's hottest new thing. The celebrity tabloid industry was growing exponentially in these years. And no surprise, they loved prying and speculating about Dean's private life. We now know that Dean had relationships with both men and women, a fact that would have killed his career had it been confirmed at the time. So racing also may have reaffirmed his masculinity when whispers got too loud. I think that notion of performing a heterosexual identity to the extent it was his or not, I think is possible um, with the car, um, that masculinity is tied to driving. So it affirms his masculinity without calling into question his sexuality. I think he, he was really an icon of, of beauty and danger and maleness. He was definitely somebody that, that men admired, somebody that women wanted to be with. In a letter to a girlfriend from Hollywood, Dean wrote a bit of a beat poem, tying his cars to his sex life. I'm assuming if he'd performed it, he would have his bongos. My sex pours itself into fast curves, broad slides and broodings, drags, etc. You have plenty of competition now. My motorcycle, my MG, and my girl. I have been sleeping with my MG. We make it together, honey. Woo! That is, uh, that's certainly a choice. I actually wrote a poem like that comparing my sex life to my riding mower. The poem goes, Sorry, dear, I'm with John Deere now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Dean now had money to make his sexiest fantasies come true. Fame and money. 
just like his character, the oil roughneck Jet Rink in his last movie, Giant. My whale came in big, so big, big, and there's more down there, and there's bigger whales. I'm rich, baby. I'm a rich boy. Dean knew what he wanted to do with his newfound riches. The 1955 Porsche 550 Spider was an aluminum dream, sleek, low to the ground, and it could speed up to 140 miles an hour. It was made for racing, for taking fast curves with the wind in your hair. It was also wildly and insanely dangerous. And no airbags, no seatbelts, nothing like that. No, it's just a very thin skin, very, very lightweight vehicle with the engine right at your back. This is not like a Buick. This was like specialized equipment. <laughs> Driving the Spider, its height was just over three feet tall. This is a low car. If you look at pictures of Dean, it comes to like mid-thigh, right? And, and he's a short man, 5'8". Um, this car was designed for speed. It's the only consideration. They didn't have to worry about anything else. There is no comfort, there's no luxury, and there is no safety. And unlike the cars they're designing for women, where they come with matching handbags, or they come with a matching umbrella and they're in pink, you know what it came with? A fire extinguisher. The danger of driving a death trap like the spider probably excited Dean. Since he lost his mom at nine, James Dean was obsessed with death, his own legend, his own demise. Friends say he claimed he wouldn't live past 30. According to a biographer, he loved the quote, live fast, die young, and have a good looking corpse. By the way, this iconic line repeated by the young and stupid everywhere came from the 1949 Nicholas Ray movie, Knock on Any Door. Dean says something to the effect of it's only when he's racing that he feels whole. And I, I think there's something not just about the wind in your hair or about the experience of feeling that, but I think there's something also about the isolation of that, that you're alone with yourself. Those around him worried about Dean's affinity for death and racing. Giant was a big budget epic starring huge names like Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor. And director George Stevens could not risk losing Dean to a careless accident. Filming started in May 1955, and for its duration, George Stevens laid down the law. Dean could not race. No way, no exceptions. A surly Dean complied, although he was extra surly on set, annoying almost everyone except his co-star Liz Taylor, who had a soft spot for lost geniuses like Dean and Montgomery Clift. In a move that must have surprised his racing friends, Dean took the time to record that safe-driving PSA while Giant was shooting interiors in Hollywood. The one where he looked like he couldn't care less about actual safe driving. And remember that little bit of improvisation he did at the end? Take it easy driving. The life you might say might be mine. <laughs> With this little wink, Dean was basically invalidating the entire PSA. 
leading viewers to believe he would still be on the open road, probably driving way over the speed limit. He says, well, I did go 106 or 107. You know, he's sheepishly admitting, proudly admitting the speed with which he can drive. As soon as shooting for Giant ended in September 1955, Dean was ready to get back to his real passion, racing in his brand new Spider. The night of September 29th, he went to his favorite Hollywood haunt, the Villa Capri. The waiter there later gave an interview about seeing James Dean in the restaurant. Jimmy, and uh, I believe it was his mechanic or his other driver were uh, sitting here in the last booth over there, and he was telling me about it. He's going up to, I think it was in Bakersfield or somewhere up in that way, for this race. And Carmen, our chef, said, well, Jimmy, we won't see you tomorrow, so I'll make you something to eat. Dean and his mechanic, Rolf Witherich, began their journey from the L.A. to Salinas around 1 in the afternoon. Dean was in the driver's seat. They stopped for gas in the valley and then headed north on the Golden State Highway into the wide-open ranch country of central California. At 3.30 p.m., Dean was pulled over for speeding, for driving 65 miles an hour in a 55 zone. Around 5.45 that night, a college student in a 1954 Tudor began to turn onto the highway in front of Dean. According to Witherich, Dean exclaimed, he's got to see us. He didn't. The other car turned in front of him. He couldn't, couldn't stop in time or get around him. He, he actually sped up and tried to get around the car instead of slamming on the brakes. The two cars collided head on. Dean was trapped in the car, his neck broken, his foot crushed between the brake pedal and clutch, while Wooderich was ejected from his seat. The college student driving the other car was only slightly injured. I received the call at 5.59 p.m., Friday, September the 30th, 1955. It was a sideswipe head-on collision. The dead was James Byron Dean, DOA, or dead on arrival at the hospital. Four days after James Dean died, Rebel Without a Cause premiered. It became a sensation. And its deadly drag race was seen as an eerie premonition of Dean's demise. In his custom red leather jacket, cigarette dangling from his lips, Dean's character of Jim drag raced against his arch enemy Buzz in the dried up riverbed of the LA River. Fan magazines went crazy. Life magazine titled their article about the actor's posthumous fans, Delirium Over Dead Star, a worshipful documentary, The James Dean Story, co-directed by young Robert Altman. Yes, that Robert Altman was rushed into theatrical release. From Maine to Manila, from Tokyo to Rome, he seemed to express some of the things they couldn't find the words for. While an amazing source for interviews with those who knew him best, it's also a kind of pretentious, over-the-top tribute. 
a strange bebop film that lionized Dean as a demigod to dissatisfied youth the world over. Youth mourned itself in the passing of James Dean because he died young and belonged to no one. Every girl could feel that he belonged to her alone because he died violently. Every boy could use him as a warning to his parents. If you don't start understanding me, I could go the same way. Well, it made him a legend. He never had to age. Uh, that's one of those things. He's frozen in amber, you know, as this, you know, beautiful disaster, that sort of thing. A few months after his death, a bonkers fan magazine called Jimmy Dean Returns was published. Read his own words from beyond the grave, it shouted. On the cover, the disembodied head of Dean broods, saying through a word bubble, how I found a new life beyond death through one girl's love. Yep, that's actually a real thing that exists. Yeah, the major takeaways are that death is sexy. David Lohr agrees. Well, there's always the romanticism of early death, and he made three terrific pictures. He had three great directors, three great films, three good roles, and he didn't let anybody down. You know, he didn't have a chance to make a bad film. But, you know, dying young, it's just like you just, it's kind of a mystery, you know. You don't know what he would have done. Eddie Alterman sees at least one other fallout from Dean's death, maybe a silver lining of sorts. Cars would have gotten safer without James Dean's death, but it was certainly a moment of inflection. It was an inflection point in the evolution of vehicles. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. The success of Rebel and the furor over Dean's death showed Hollywood that teen angst sold tickets. Dean transformed Hollywood, ushering in the dominance of youth culture, which continues basically to be the mainstream culture in America to this day. The rebellious teens had triumphed over the sophisticated squares who had dominated the entertainment industry since its inception. Even fellow teen heartthrob Elvis Presley, Dean's contemporary, worshipped Dean's legacy and what he represented. They predict that uh, uh, Elvis Presley will be another James Dean. Now, have you heard that? I've heard something about it, but uh, I would I would never compare myself in any way to James Dean because James Dean was a genius. Dean's early demise also set up a troubling precedence that danger and rebelliousness are hot. To this day, stars who are seen as death-defying risk-takers get more opportunities, publicity, and street cred. 
even Dean's death car itself has been weirdly fetishized. In the late 50s, car designer George Barris toured the country with what he claimed was Dean's spider. Those car safety films shown in schools began to feature images of Dean's actual car to scare straight the very rebellious teenagers he had represented. They eventually use actual video recordings shot by police officers when they arrive. Um, And this gory, horrific material and that car, Dean's car, would go on to serve the same purpose, traveling the country as part of a safety campaign. The films were showing you, here it is, destroyed, um, and it destroyed him. Parts of the mangled spider are said to be cursed, and people are said to have died when driving in cars using parts from the infamous Dean death car. The car's strange journey continues to this day. In 2021, there was a bidding war over the spider's axle, which eventually sold for an unreal $382,000. Weird, isn't it? Bunch of rich guys bidding over a part of a broken car where a movie star died. A new James Dean display featuring the transaxle of Dean's 550 poor spider opened in 2022 at Zach Baggins, the Haunted Museum in Las Vegas. It's just what James Dean, the master craftsman, always firmly in control, yet portraying the raw emotions of America's dissolution, would have wanted. I think there's only one true form of greatness for a man, he once said. If a man can bridge the gap between life and death, I mean, if he can live on after he's died, then maybe that was a great man. To me, the only success, the only greatness is immortality. Unlock all episodes of Death on the Lot ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge our new podcast channel. Not only will you immediately unlock all episodes of the show, but you'll get binge access to an entire network of other great true crime and investigative podcasts all ad-free. Plus, on the first of every month, subscribers get a binge drop. That's not my phrase, by the way, but I'm going to say it. They get a binge drop of a brand new series. That's all episodes all at once. Unlock your listening now by clicking subscribe at the top of the Death on the Lot show page on Apple Podcasts or visit GetTheBinge.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Death on the Lot is a Hyper Object Industries and Sony Music Entertainment production. It's executive produced by Jody Avergan, Claire Slaughter, Harry Nelson, and me, Adam McKay. Episodes were written by Brian Steele and Hadley Mears and edited by Jody Avergan. Our managing producer was Jennifer Siegel, and talent producer was Catherine Shoemaker. Producers were Shane McKeon and Kendra Hanna with additional production support from Jordan Allen and Zaley Mahone. Consultants on the show were Justin Geldzahler and Sarah Mathis. Episodes were fact-checked by Matt Giles and Tom Cody. Our music is by Beacon Street Studios, 
episodes were mixed and sound designed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Special thanks to David Lohr, author of That's How Strong My Love Is, from rock and roll to James Dean. I'm your host, Adam McKay. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with more depth on the lot. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hey there, it's your pal Adam McKay with a couple thoughts about this episode and some thoughts about the episode coming up next. You know, Dean is such an interesting figure. I mean, he was definitely extremely performative in the way he interpreted the method. And sometimes I think it's great. Other times I'm not quite with it, but I'm in 2023. So what do I know? Um, There's no question, though, the feelings he was expressing at that time were really unique in the human history uh, as far as alienation, dealing with this kind of newfound plenty that America was experiencing with huge booming economy. Um, there's a lot of that running through what Dean was doing. There's also a fracturing of American identity and American masculinity. And in whatever way, I think we can thank James Dean for introducing a little bit of sensitivity, uh, if that's the right word, into all of that testosterone. The next episode definitely connects to this whole idea of evolving, devolving, and ever-changing American masculinity. The next episode will be about the guy who played Superman and with a brand new kind of fame, uh, absolutely detonating in the 30s, 40s and 50s with film tabloids and then television. I mean, it's hard to even comprehend what it must have felt like for a really good guy, George Reeves, to play Superman. And if James Dean may have felt trapped in his Hollywood persona, George Reeves absolutely did. Um, A lot of it's predictable. You may have heard about some of it, uh, but we go quite deep into this story. Um, It's tragic. It's sometimes funny. And I definitely walked away thinking uh, I would not 
want to have been George Reeves in that moment. So uh, join us and give a listen. All right. See you next episode. Ha, 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 ha,